though nonetheless reverberate in our mind tonight for the thanksgiving we each enjoy and feel to be simply be able to come together. And of course, with health and other matters as well as they are, what a friendly confine to think of the warmth, the fellowship, the communion that we can enjoy not only with God, but also with one another. As we continue tonight in our series of lessons in which we consider the church, we might consider the fact that we have been involved in that series for a few weeks now, but each of the lessons has presented its own unique features, and each one has also called upon us to appreciate the many things that God has revealed about His church in His Holy Word. As we have looked at those lessons, time and again we have been led to appreciate the blessedness of that body. Not the least of which is its undenominational character, the fact that there is but one of the church, and furthermore, that it is the body of Christ. Even tonight, as we consider a continuation of some of these other thoughts about the church, would you just recall briefly with me what we learned last Sunday evening as well as this morning? Today, as we looked upon that church and noted the leadership that it is blessed to have, one naturally asks, what does that leadership lead the church to do? What is the business of the church? What work should it be involved in? You and I live in a world where that question, though it seems so simple, is given a myriad of answers. In fact, some may feel as though the church is basically just some special organization which is based upon entertainment. For others, the church is an organization in which it simply does one or more good deeds throughout the year. For some, pick up trash along the road and gather on occasion for other purposes. For some, the church may be used as a stepping stone for greater fame and fortune in the community. What is the work of the church? Is there a specified work which, according to the very decree of God, that the church should be involved in? Tonight, as we open the blessed pages of the Word of God, we shall find not only an answer, but a very clear one at that. No doubt tonight, as we've already sung, some of the elements of which we're about to study are already involved in the songs that we've sung. Consider with me the first work that we might well be able to consider in some great detail. To do that, let's build a foundation. What does God's Word have to say about work from any perspective? Note the following with me. The Bible speaks a great deal about the role of work. And what's more, it has always been the will of the Almighty God of heaven that his children especially be involved in good works. Even as far back as Genesis 2 verse 15, do we not remember that there God gave to Adam the duty, the responsibility to dress and to keep the garden? He wasn't to simply luxuriously rest in idleness, but rather he had chores which he was to accomplish. Notice also much later in the Old Testament in Ecclesiastes 9, verse number 10, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. You and I are encouraged then with matters of goodness, those good works which are opportunity afforded to us to accomplish, we should then be busily engaged in them, should we not? No wonder Paul then to the Galatians could say in Galatians 4.18 that it is a good thing always to be zealously affected toward the accomplishment of good works. 
Isn't it amazing to reflect on the usage of that word always? That adverb always? It's always a good thing for you and me to devote our attention to the fulfillment of good works. In fact, that notion of good works is one of the prime thoughts in the little book of Titus, isn't it? Though that book is only three chapters and not very many verses in some total, over and over again Paul's theme never veers far from a discussion of good works. And let ours also learn to maintain good works. Titus 3 verse 14. And that very text we observe this morning in Titus 2, verses 13 and 14, that we have been purchased and thus by Christ should be zealous unto good works. Maybe to reflect upon all of that, notice the opposite side of that coin. Does the Bible have any concerns about idleness? Any warnings sounded loudly and clearly to that end? And the answer, of course, is an obvious yes, isn't it? As you and I have looked deeply into the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, we find many occasions in which we are warned about idleness. In fact, not only warned, but in many cases a condemnation laid upon those who would be slothful and those who would be given to laziness or those who would shirk the responsibility given unto them. I've listed some of the texts on the wall to my left. In Proverbs 21, 25, as well as in the heart of Proverbs 23, on two occasions, very strongly, warnings are worded that help us remember that it was always God's will, even in the physical realm, for us not to be slothful. How well did Paul say that if a man would not work, then neither should he eat? 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10. Indeed, are we not told in 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, that those who won't take care of their own are worse than an infidel? The Bible then instructs us to ever be mindful that too much idleness is not a good thing. In fact, has it not often been told to us by parents or others who were interested in our well-being that an idle mind is the devil's workshop? Though it's true that one can't find it expressly stated in words that way, how often do we find in the scriptures where that principle is taught? As we consider the life of those in both Old and New Testament, it was when David was idle that he saw Bathsheba from the roof of his castle in 2 Samuel chapter 11. David wasn't where he ought to have been. And don't we remember other instances where even Saul found himself in similar circumstances with regard to idleness? Surely enough, God desires that you and I, during our sojourn upon this earth, use that time effectively. For did not Paul say, redeeming the time, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17 of that chapter, remind us that that word redeem means to make the most of, to use the greatest advantage. And thus, when you and I, by virtue of idleness, refuse to do that, we bring sorrow to the God of heaven. It is such that we then fall short of the duty which God has rested upon us and of that great vocation wherewith we have been called, Ephesians 4, verse 1. Thus, in light of these opening remarks, let us quickly observe then that Jesus encouraged us also in verse 33 of Matthew 6, near the close of that middle chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, when there he told us that we should as highest priority seek the kingdom of God first. 
As we do all of that, thinking then about the work of the church, it thus rests upon us to answer the question, if we are to seek the kingdom of God first, then what duties are ours to perform? Where should our interests and investments lie spiritually? May I submit to you that that work of the church flows entirely from the mission which it has been given. We each understand that upon earth an organization rests upon its mission. The whole reason for founding it is stated in its mission. Whether that be a Lions Club or a Rotary Club or some other organization, it is prompted by and proceeds to fulfill that which is stated in its mission. The mission of the church perhaps was read to us so clearly a moment ago. Our text of Ephesians 3.21, To him, that is God, be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. The church's highest function and priority is to direct the glory unto God which is rightfully his. And notice it is done through Christ Jesus. What special works are we given in the New Testament that fulfill that mission? May I submit to you that there are three. Let us look at each one of them in turn. And first on the list is simply the word of evangelism. We understand that that word in terms of an individual does occur in the New Testament. That amongst those in Ephesians 4.11, the evangelists, those who would proclaim the blessed message of the gospel of Christ Jesus, and in that proclamation would in fact draw to the nature of Jesus those that would be his disciples. Let us look somewhat more intently at this matter of evangelism. First, let us observe that it is absolutely commanded. As such, many texts might well be noted, but consider these with me. Our blessed Savior, of course, had gone to Calvary, and they had nailed him to that old rugged cross. However, on that blessed Lord's Day morning, he arose from that grave. Not many days later, with a nail-pierced hand, he pointed to a world of sin and sorrow and said to those apostles, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Those were Mark's recorded words by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Mark 16. But notice, just to make sure we did not fail to appreciate its significance, notice that both Luke and Matthew record similar statements but add emphases in different ways. Consider Luke's version in Luke 24. There in verses 46 and 47, Luke recorded again these timeless but so powerful words. He said, Thus it is written, And thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. To this point, notice just briefly what we've seen. First, Jesus said, These are to be preached to every creature. No exemptions. Further, Luke added the fact among all nations. There's no place on earth too far distantly removed from the need for the blessed gospel of Christ. No soul on earth falls outside the characteristic of needing the saving message of Jesus. The church has that responsibility to tell, to speak, to carry it forward. In Matthew's account, Jesus said, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And, Lord, I am with you all the way even unto the end of the world. We yet see also here all nations. And furthermore, that which was to be done was first teach them such that that would lead to baptism. And then Matthew said, you continue to teach them. He specifically said, all that I've commanded you. Do we not then see in these words the pressing need to carry forth the gospel for men and women without it are hopelessly lost? It is no wonder in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, Paul said, Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Paul understood that a woe, in effect, was upon him. He was derelict in his duties if he did not preach that truth. These thoughts are challenging indeed, aren't they? In 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, the same idea rests upon you and me today. For in those timeless words we read this, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. It is a perpetuated message, isn't it? You and I preach it and tell it, and then the next generation will tell it again. And it will continue on. We're marching through time, and souls will be saved as they hear and respond in faithful obedience. The church has an obligation, a responsibility, a challenge and chore to preach that word in the act of benevolence or in the act of evangelism. Notice the other texts that you and I can well consider as well. I've listed on the wall again another interesting point. In that idea, notice that the reason that Paul lists in Romans 1, beginning in verse 14, is this. Even as he was able and excited about the church in Rome, he specifically made note to them this fact. He said, I'm there to preach it. I'm ready to preach it. I'm not ashamed to preach it. That's verses 14, 15, and 16 in Romans chapter 1. It would appear from verse 14 and 15 that Paul felt a debt, an actual obligation he owed to the brethren in Rome as well as all others, be they barbarian or otherwise, to preach to them the blessed soul-saving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul understood the importance of that responsibility and he was faithful to carry it out, wasn't he? Three missionary journeys and a voyage to Rome, all the while planting congregations and preaching the word. As he preached that word, he often would return and hail those brethren in dear regard, praying for them, desiring and even sending to them some of his companions that that church might remain faithful and strong. Evangelism. It is no wonder as you and I consider that work today that texts such as Romans 6, verses 16 to 18 come so readily to our mind. Where there again to that church in Rome, Paul said, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that same doctrine which was delivered unto you. Being made therefore free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. How else then can men become servants of righteousness unless they are presented that doctrine which the Romans obeyed. Of course, that's the doctrine of the gospel. You and I have such a precious treasure in our possession. When you and I hold a Bible in our hand, we have the timeless Word of God that shall stand in judgment, the standard by which we shall be judged on that great and final day. 
and those who have not obeyed it. It brings a tear to our eye to even consider it. But that's the very reason that Jesus pointed the finger and said, You go and teach all nations. Every creature under heaven needs the message. For Jesus died for all men. Wasn't that the words of John in 1 John 2, verse 2? That He is, in fact, not only our advocate with the Father, but He's the perpetuation not only for our sins, but for those of the whole world. Whether the person be on the back deserts of Australia, or in the mountains of Tibet, perhaps in the capital city of France, or in a ghetto in Chicago, it doesn't make any difference. Everyone is in need of the gospel. And you and I then have the blessed privilege of finding ways to share it with them. And the church today has many things that it can make use of. We preach the word as perhaps we're doing currently. But we also may pass out tracts and pamphlets, sponsor radio programs and articles in the newspaper. We may pay the cost to send us missionary to India or to Nigeria or somewhere else to preach the news, the good news of Christ. That's a wonderful work, isn't it? And we should be thankful that we have the means by which we can do that and to aid in the accomplishment of the matter of evangelism. In 1 Peter 1, verse 22, we notice there that it's by that message of the word that the soul is purified. Those then who do not obey the word, how can their soul ever be purified? And the answer is built into the question. It is not possible. Many other texts could be arrayed in our discussion and our consideration. I would ask you to reflect upon Paul's motivation of 2 Corinthians 5.11. Paul, why again were you so incessant on preaching the word? Notice as we begin in verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Therefore, Paul said, We persuade men knowing the terror of the Lord. There was Paul's motivation. He knew a day of judgment was coming and God's terror would be rained upon those who are disobedient, those who have never obeyed the gospel. For that reason, Paul could then say in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 9, in such penetrating words, to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord for the glory of his power. Paul knew there was an eternity in destruction awaiting, an eternity in a devil's hell. And thus, due to his knowledge of that terror, he persuaded men. And you and I are motivated by the same thoughts, aren't we? To even think about this subject paints eternity right before us, doesn't it? And yet all the while, perhaps we can reflect upon the Lord's logic of Mark 8, verses 36 and 37. For there even Jesus in a remarkable fashion said what would a man give in exchange for his soul we each know that on the day of judgment many will be found neglectful of their duties while upon this earth but it will be too late then no exchange at that point will be allowed no possibility will there exist a few moments ago we sang a song that is such a challenging aspect of this whole idea when in the better land before the bar we stand how deeply grieved our souls will be if any lost one there should cry in deep despair. You never mentioned him to me. 
challenge all of us to have the word of the Lord upon our lips and ready to share it with those who are lost, those who are not members of the Lord's body. Indeed, one of the great works of the church, evangelism, to share the good news of Jesus. To say that, though, perhaps tells us that we have yet another work as well. In addition to evangelism, would you think about this one with me? That of benevolence. Perhaps on occasion as we reflect upon the idea of benevolence, we understand that that is to aid the physical character and nature of those who are less fortunate, those who are indeed down and out perhaps, those who are suffering greatly the physical necessities perhaps of this life. Though it's true that the spiritual matters are of utmost importance by the nature of the Lord's statement of Matthew 6.33, that is not to say that the physical things are of no importance at all. For do not we read time and again in the New Testament of how that the Lord both Himself and in His teaching urged there to be an interest in the physical well-being of others. Jesus, how often did He exemplify that same thing? when it drew near the close of day in Mark chapter 6, and he realized the crowd had nothing to eat all day. The Lord did not send them away hungry. He knew that they were in need. It was on that occasion that he fed the 5,000. That's but one example from the life of our Lord. Would you think with me of some others where that idea presents itself in the Holy Word of God? In Acts 11, as well as Romans 15 and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we remember that Paul had within his mind and heart a great desire to physically make a collection so that those poor and needy saints in Jerusalem could have the physical necessities which they had to that point lacked. Paul was interested in the physical nature, the fact that they were suffering greatly. That's but one example of some others that might well be listed. I have listed on the board, on the wall, some others for your consideration. That word in James, the very last verse of James chapter 1. Consider with me that James there said, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. That word visit is an interesting word from the Greek text. It doesn't mean merely to go and see them in person. It means to take care of, to see to their needs. If those are lacking, those who are fatherless and widows, James said that there's an obligation, there's a duty to help make sure that those lackings are remedied. But notice in the very next chapter, James asks a rhetorical question where he says, what benefit is it if one who is in fact lacking and merely you say, well, depart and be warmed and filled? Has it accomplished anything toward helping that person to be clothed or to help them in fact to have food? Well, the answer is obvious. And that's exactly where he said that faith without works is dead being alone, James 2.17. We then realize our duty that if the obligation and opportunity presents itself to us, we can help take care of those in need by providing the things that they, that they are doing without. In 1 John 3, verse 17, notice there that a rather strong question is worded. And it's worded in this fashion and in this manner. How dwelleth the love of God in him? 
in that very one who in fact hath this world's good but shutteth up his bowels of compassion from those who are in need. And again, that's one of those 2,000 questions in the Bible and the answer is built into the question. The love of God doesn't dwell in him. Isn't it a remarkable thought then, the beautiful way that the church can help take care of those who are seriously in need. Now we realize the church is no welfare organization in the sense of our federal government, but to someone who is in dire need and without food or without some other necessity, we can certainly do our part to try and help make sure that that situation is taken care of. The very thought of benevolence in both Old and New Testament touched the hearts and minds of so very many. In terms of yet another scripture which places upon us an unmistakable message, I would ask you to think with me about the Lord's picture of Matthew 25. As he pictured the judgment day, he said that all nations would be gathered before him. And there would be a separation to those on his right and those on his left. And as he addressed them one at a time, he specifically started in beautiful ways and addressed those on the right and said, When I was hungry, you gave me meat. When I was a stranger, you took me in. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was sick or in prison, you visited me. When I was, when I was naked, you clothed me. And thus they responded, Lord, when saw we thee in these ways? And it was at that point Jesus said that inasmuch as ye have done it unto the one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. But following that, to those on the left, he also had words to say, but it wasn't nearly as comforting. In fact, he said, when I was sick, you didn't visit me. When I was hungry, you didn't fill me. When I was in prison, you didn't visit me. You didn't take care of me. You didn't see to me. But in the final regard, note that they also said, Lord, whenever saw we thee in these ways? And Jesus responded, Inasmuch as ye did it not unto the one of the least of these my brethren, ye did it not to me. That's a timeless lesson in the sense that then upon the responsibility of the church is always to be mindful of these matters and physical things, those hungry, those that are thirsty, those in prison, those that are sick, to always try and do what we can to lighten their burden, to of course do it in a Christian fashion, but to do it in a matter of benevolence. Oh, this work of the church is so very needful, isn't it? Sometimes we might not think that we're able to do much. Maybe we look at other congregations who are vastly larger in number and we say we simply can't. But to those, I would remind us of Jesus' statement in Matthew 10.42. Those who give merely a cup of cold water in my name, they will be blessed. You see, God doesn't look upon us and judge us in the same way he does others. For notice, we will be judged by those opportunities, Revelation chapter 3. To those who can do more, more will be demanded. But to those who can do less, then when they do what they can with what they have, they too will be blessed by the Heavenly Father. That was true of the church in Philadelphia, wasn't it? Though they weren't large, though they weren't great in size, Jesus said, I know thy works, and an open door has been set before you that no man can shut. Jesus pronounced a blessing upon them because they did what they could with what they had. And the same principle applies to us today. The matter of benevolence. What a beautiful thought that not only spiritually, but also to take care of these needs, we can be a great instrument in the hands of God.
I listed the title of another song, Room in the Kingdom. Maybe you've sung that at some point. There is room in the kingdom of God my brother for all the things that you can do. And even one verse of that song makes mention of just a cup of cold water in the Lord's name given. Shall in no wise lose his reward. That's a great thought to you and me, isn't it? But as we've looked so far at evangelism and also at the idea of benevolence, let us hasten to look at one other work that the church has given. As you've already thought probably about it, it's that work known as edification. That work recognized and discussed in that very same way. At this point, I'd ask you to read a text with me that sets the idea before us. In Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 11. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 11. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. And though you and I at this point may often have thought about that listing of workers and offices, have we paid as much attention to the next verse when it tells us why God has given those workers? Verse number 12. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of this faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of God, of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up unto him in all things which is the head, even Christ. Note with me, if you would, again, verse 12. Those offices, that is a significant aspect of the work of the church, is for the perfecting of the saints, for the edifying of the body of Christ. We understand that the word edify means to build up, to aid to mature, to aid to grow. A significant element, thus, in the work of the church is also to edify those who are her members. Now truly, one aspect of evangelism is edification. For when a person is not a member of the body, obviously it's an edification to teach and encourage them to become so. But is it not true that even those who are already Christians still need to be edified? Consider some passages that I shared with you. There are degrees of faith, aren't there? There are those who are mature and strong in the faith, but others may be much weaker due to any number of reasons. But that doesn't matter from the point of view that we all are encouraged to grow. We must never be satisfied with where we are, with the status quo, if you will. In fact, what is stated for us in 1 Peter 2, verse 2, there the text, Desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And that command that's stated is the very last sentence in the book of 2 Peter, 2 Peter 3.18, But grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. That's a command, isn't it? He didn't say if you'd like to or if you feel like it. He said to all of us, Grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we think about the element of that growth, the church can aid that by providing opportunities for that growth, such as Bible study period. When you and I gather in Bible study under the, as students under a qualified and learned man who has studied himself the Scriptures, 
That gives us grand opportunity to learn and to appreciate and to come to know more deeply, more fully the teaching of God. To that extent, that reflects perhaps upon our own priorities if we forsake such opportunities, if we choose to forfeit the power and beauty of them. But what's more, notice how that in the faith discussions of Paul in Romans 14, he of course taught that we should desire to grow in the grace, to grow in the knowledge, to grow in the understanding. For else, how can we ever reach that point described in Hebrews 6 verse 1? Notice, the Hebrew writer there said, Therefore leaving the first principles of the oracles of God. What did he mean by leaving? He did not mean to utterly forget. He did not mean that to set them aside as unimportant. The Hebrew writer meant, There should come a time in our spiritual maturity when we no longer are puzzled by and must devote our complete attention to mastering the first principles. Or we're to chew on more meaty matters. It's much like a child in school. They at first may be taught the letters of the alphabet, but there comes a time when they have mastered them. A senior in high school, you wouldn't expect to still be learning the letters of the alphabet. By that point, he has mastered them and now can place them together in complex sentences and set forth ideas. He's mastered that context. So too it should be for you and me in the faith, shouldn't it? We should master those early things by our study and our diligence and be able to chew on meteor things. For after all, those meteor things will then be ready for us to share with others as we've come to understand them. The very thought of edification challenges us in yet another way. I've listed also the very thought of Romans 12 verse 15. The beauty spot there of that passage in which Paul to that Roman brethren shares with them the thought that as we edify one another, it is not in an attitude of condescension. It's never in an attitude of the one who perhaps feels like he knows more to say, I told you so, or to lord it over the others. It is the family of God. In that family that is governed by love and in the well-being of one another, we can rejoice with those that rejoice, weep with those that weep, and be there to aid one another in edifying in those matters of spiritual degree. From time to time, we all need that, don't we? It's easy to become discouraged sometimes. It's easy to sometimes think, well, due to the illnesses and oppressions and afflictions that have come my way, is it really worth it all? And there's when a kind brother or sister will say, oh, absolutely it is. There's when their faithfulness and perhaps a kind lesson they may have taught us can help us not give up, but to remain steadfast, true and strong in our degree of the faith of Christ. We each need that degree of edification. We each need that sternness and strongness that we see in the fortitude and life of others. And we each need that along the way in our walk upon earth. What about the questions I've stated at the bottom of that screen? What about my life and yours? Really, we're only in one of two categories. Do you and I build others up, or do we tend to tear them down? Is the example of my life, an example of yours, one that seeks to edify others, or does it weaken them? If it is the former, how blessed we are. How powerful is our example for Christ? But if it's the latter, something needs to change. 
for we wouldn't want to stand before the Lord and give an account for having torn down the faith of another by the dear election of our responsibilities and duties to actually weaken another's faith. Paul said he never wished to behave in such a way to be a stumbling block for anybody else. 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 10. In fact, he said, may it never be so. And may that be the thought of my life and yours, to never so conduct ourselves by way of speech or by way of places to be visited or by conduct of our life to weaken or harm or in any way reduce the faith of another. In fact, we should do the opposite, to edify, to strengthen, to build up, to encourage. And so it is. As we think about the nature of these works, could we summarize maybe in the following way? As we've looked this evening, the work of the church is greatly significant. We've learned about that in our study, that it comprises the three elements of evangelism, benevolence, and edification. And we each are blessed by varying degrees with talents whereby we can participate in these things. We should ever be mindful of the fact that Jesus knows our works. We cannot hide from him. Every time in the book of Revelation, to all seven of those churches, Jesus began every single one by saying, I know thy works. It's not as though that if they were failing in any way, they could hope to hide it. The Lord knew, and he knows about the Pippin congregation today, and every other congregation it can possibly be named. And what's more, he knows even individually about you and about me. Where do you and I stand in evangelism, in benevolence, in edification? Are we doing that which we can with what we have? Tonight, as we stand in just a moment and sing this hymn of encouragement, let us be ever mindful of the works of the church and the blessed thought that's ours to be able to participate in them. If we could assist anyone tonight in your public obedience to Jesus, Realize that in order to be able to work with great influence, you must be a member of his body. You need to be able to wear proudly the name Christian. And thus you need to believe upon Jesus, repent of your sins, confess his sweet name as your Savior, and be baptized. Once you've done that, you then will be able to work greatly and fearsomely trying to reach others with the blessed message of Jesus. If you have done that in life, but you have lost the interest, the zeal, the fervor, come back to that first love. And again, light the fire of work within you so that you too can be zealously affected with a good thing. Galatians 4.18 Tonight, if we could assist you in your public obedience, let us do that even now while together we stand and while we sing.